This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, it would be great for you to head that direction. Um, We have been in Mark now for three consecutive weeks and about six weeks before that. And uh, we'll stay in Mark for the rest of December, essentially. We're going to be in Mark the three Sundays in December, the 4th, the 11th, and the 18th. And then uh, on Christmas Eve, uh, we'll, we'll be in probably a Christmas Eve text, if I had to guess. And then starting in January, we're going to work through prayer as a spiritual practice, a sort of a similar pattern to the one that we cut when we worked through silence and solitude. Same idea, just a different subject, so you guys know where we're headed. If you're new to us, uh, and maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, or you're not familiar with taking notes, you definitely don't have to do that. I don't monitor that while I'm preaching, and nobody else in the room does either. But if you like to take notes, and you'd like a tool that we think would be useful to you, uh, in the lobby today, on the Connect table, is a stack of black scripture journals. They just look like little black paperback books, uh, soft covers, and they have within them the book of Mark in the ESV translation, and lots and lots of space to take notes. The point of them is to be able to read and highlight and scratch through things and circle stuff and then take notes of particular points that are made or books that are mentioned or different things like that so that if you have sort of a normal Bible for study and you don't want to mark that up, you don't have to do that. And If you'd like to kind of compile over the next couple of years uh, the work that we're doing in the book of Mark, God willing, by the end of it, by the end of chapter 16, uh, you'll have a really strong resource that you can carry with you into your future, a place to go back and cross-reference Uh, the things that you noticed about the book of Mark, what God may have said to you, the different things that were happening in your life. So if you want want one of those, they're free to you. They're a gift that we'd love to give you because we think they're a really helpful tool. And you can snag one in the lobby when we're done, or you can get up right now and go get one and come back in. That's not going to bother me or anybody else. This morning, we're going to take a hard look at verses 29 through 34 of Mark chapter 1. But I want to start reading in just a second back in verse 21, because I want to give us the context. The events that begin in verse 21 when Jesus enters the city of Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee take about 48 hours through the end of the chapter, through the end of chapter 1. And so what we're going to see Jesus do in the home of Peter really begins earlier that morning in the synagogue on the Sabbath back in verse 21. Uh, My objective today is to sort of break this into pieces and to make some comments As we go, this is what I typically do when we preach narrative, is try to help you uh, gain some illumination on the details of what's going on in the story that may not immediately jump off the page at you. And I'll also make some comments on things that I think are practical. My goal being that by the time we wrap up our time today, there will be a few realities about Jesus' life, Uh, some details maybe even from within this passage that will help you understand him better and God willing connect with him Because I think when you see Jesus clearly, I don't think this, I'm actually convicted of this, I believe that this is true wholeheartedly. When you see Jesus clearly, you gain the opportunity to really meet him. And when you meet him, you'll love him, and once you love him, you'll follow him anywhere. And the only places that Jesus ever leads us is further into life, away from death, which lives in our rearview mirror as followers of Jesus. So that's my goal for you today. As a pastor, uh, maybe you don't even know me, but I guess for the next 40 minutes or so, I'll be your pastor. I'm at least your preacher, and my goal is to try to lay before you who Jesus is, and if I can, introduce you to him in a way that shows you how winsome and majestic he really is. So let's look at Mark chapter 1. Hopefully you've had a second to head that direction. We're going to start reading in verse 21. We'll have the verses for you on the screens if that's helpful. Feel free to follow along in your scripture journal, your Bible, your tablet, your phone, whatever works for you. This is the word of the Lord, the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, James, John, Simon, and Andrew, this is the the group of five, Jesus and his first four disciples, went into Capernaum. Now we find out in the book of John that Capernaum 
uh, is sort of regionally associated with another city called Bethsaida. They're close enough that they're kind of considered one suburb uh, around the city of, uh, Sea of Galilee. And so this is hometown area for Peter and his brother Andrew. It's also hometown area for James and John. If they had had football in AD 30, very likely these guys would have gone to rival high schools and they would have known each other very well and then found themselves in the blue collar workforce after graduation out on the Sea of Galilee fishing for fish. So they go into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, which in Jesus' day was a Saturday by law, Jesus entered the synagogue and he began teaching. Now we're used to Jesus as a teacher, but this is a bit of a nuanced thing for us. Jesus has not done very much teaching at all. Prior to this uh, instance, back in verses 14 and 15, Jesus presents the gospel to any who will listen, but this is really his first formal speaking, speaking engagement. This is his chance to, in a way, step onto a stage and have a captive audience and present to them what is good and right and true. We're not told what the content of the teaching is, but we get the reaction from the crowd in verse 22. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching. They were bewildered, they were flabbergasted, pick your superlative of choice, but they couldn't believe what they were hearing is what this book wants you to know. Why? Because Jesus taught them as a person who carried his own authority and not in the way of the scribes or what can be translated as experts on the Old Testament law of God. Now immediately, verse 23, there was in the synagogue at Capernaum a man with an evil spirit. And the spirit cried out using the man's voice and said, verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Us meaning we demonic spirits who have really been able to kind of run roughshod over the earth all these years. Why are you here and what is this about? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. This demon spits these words in Jesus' face. Now last week if you were here, Joshua Mangum, who is our youth minister, did a really good job of teaching his way through this text for us. Um, I've been on a two-week preaching break, and I just want to take a second before we go a lot further and thank Joshua and thank Tyler Wolf, both, who preached the previous two Sundays for their hard work and preparation and their faithful presentation of the scriptures. I was able to attend both of these last two Sundays and just participate in worship with my family and listen to this good preaching and, and take it in in my life, uh, which is important for me to get once in a while as well, and I was so, so grateful to have received clear and helpful insight from these two young guys as they were able to unpack the scriptures for us. So thank you, both of you guys, for your hard work. Last week, Josh was able to highlight for us the unique authority that Jesus carried with him. If you haven't heard that sermon, you can catch it on our website, and it would be worth your time, because the context of that sermon is what's about to happen today, what we're going to be looking at hardcore. We noticed last week that the way the demonic spirit responded to Jesus was really different from the way that that demonic spirit had basically not responded to anybody else who did any teaching prior to that point. We also noticed how different the reaction was among the people that immediately upon Jesus beginning to teach, the, the sense, the kind of the mood or the tone in the room, the atmosphere was different. There was something remarkably, noticeably different about the way that Jesus presented himself. Let's keep reading verse 25. Jesus rebuked the spirit who's just called him the Holy One of God. He said, be silent and come out of the man. And the evil spirit, which was convulsing the man and crying out with a loud voice, did that. He came out of the man, verse 27. And all the people in the synagogue who just thought they were showing up for a Saturday morning service like they had every other week, they were amazed so that they began to question among themselves, just like you would if somebody came in here and started screaming at me that I was the Holy One of God. I'm not. Jesus is the only one who does that. But if that happened and I kicked a demon out of somebody, all y'all would be texting people, taking, you'd try to be clever about it, use your Bible to cover your phone up. You'd be taking videos, right? I know how you are. Be on your Snapchat like 10 minutes later. 
So this is the mood. These people can't believe it. They're not just kind of quietly and politely going, hmm, this is unprecedented, and I'm not sure how to respond to this. Their jaws are on the floor. They can't believe it. I mean, this is like a WWE match just started in the middle of church on Saturday morning, and Jesus wins clearly and decisively, which is not usually the case in this world. It's not typical for a religious leader or a rabbi to have the authority to get rid of a demon. If that was the case, the demons would have been gotten rid of. The people have been waiting for someone to arrive who has more spiritual authority than your average rabbi. And Jesus shows up and does exactly what's needed. As the evil spirit leaves, the people question and they say say to themselves, what is this? This is some kind of new teaching. We don't have a category for that. That's what that question, what is this, means. It's not rhetorical. Literally, they don't know what to do with the kind of teaching that creates immediate, tangible results in the lives of people. They've never seen it done before. A new teaching with authority, they say. Jesus commands even the unclean spirits, even the evil spirits, and they obey him. And at once, Jesus' fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Now again, to just go back to last week for a second, we said that Jesus' teaching didn't come with footnotes. This is part of what makes the people around him so surprised to interact with him, is he doesn't need to cross-reference his teaching or build his points on the back of some other great teacher or leader. He simply states things as if they are and expects all of us to accept that that's the way that it is. He wasn't dependent on the philosophy of the day. He wasn't dependent on some preset theological grid that had been presented by some church or tribe or denomination that he came out of. There were no, if you will, retweets on Jesus' timeline. It was just him speaking with authority, original thoughts, original perspectives, and not just that, a difference was being made. People were being changed, literally, physically, permanently, right in front of the eyes of the people who were listening to Jesus. So I think it's fair to say that Jesus breaks onto the scene in a major way in the ancient Near East. The city's buzzing with the word about Jesus, what he's done, his reputation, the stories of of just what's happened that morning in the synagogue. And you better believe that this is probably the only news anybody is talking about, okay? For the the people who experience this, an exorcism on a Sabbath inside the synagogue, uh, that doesn't happen. In fact, most of the people, if you had polled them a week or two earlier, would have said, no, it's impossible, it would never happen. It's just not the way it works. Demons don't come into the synagogue. The synagogue isn't a terribly spiritual place. It's a lot of practical teaching and head knowledge. This just isn't the way that they've experienced following God up to this point. We know based on later passages that we'll read and and talk through eventually in the book of Mark that there are people who are already beginning to question whether Jesus himself is possibly a demon, that he may be some kind of prince or king in the demonic realm, and that's what gives him the authority to send demons away or put them in a herd of pigs instead of demonizing a man in a graveyard, things like that that eventually will be stories that we'll study. Some people are just kicking themselves, right? Because they wish they would have been at church that morning. I mean, this is the ultimate service, and they missed it. They slept in and missed the demon getting kicked out. That's the one Sunday that they decided to stay in bed that morning. And very likely, there's a handful of people that are already making plans to head into Jerusalem and run this experience by the rabbis and the Pharisee teachers who are there, the ultimate spiritual authorities, to say to them, what does this mean? Do you guys know about this? Is this Jesus on your team? What do we do with a guy like this? Now, that hasn't happened yet. This is day one and two of Jesus' public ministry. But this is kind of what's going on. People are reacting. I don't want you to miss that in the story. It's not quite so clinical and sterile as the way that the Bible presents it. The Bible's presentation is good and right, and we need it. Don't misunderstand me. But what Mark is trying to do is speak facts into a culture that understands itself, and you and I are so far removed from that, it's easy to miss things like this. So I want you to understand that for these four brand new disciples of Jesus, 
for Simon and his brother Andrew, which I'm going to use Simon and Peter interchangeably because Simon was his name at birth. Jesus changed his name into the Greek word Petros, which means rock. That's where we get Peter from. Uh, so I'm going to just speak as, of him as if he's one person because he is. So you know, Simon is Peter, Peter is Simon. So that's one of the four. His brother is Andrew. And there's two other brothers, James and John, who are the sons of a guy whose name is Zebedee, which we translate roughly as the word thunder. So he's probably a big, strong guy. Uh, these are the four disciples, and they're working with Jesus. They're walking with him. You think about just yesterday morning, they'd been called by Jesus off their boats, either early in the morning or late at night as they're back on shore, either preparing the boats or coming in from a long day of fishing. And now they go back into their hometown. They're probably really excited because they've been given this new honor of being asked to follow a rabbi, which is not at all what any of their parents expected for them. These are not guys who made A pluses in reading and literature and philosophy. These are guys who were probably really good at sports, had a decent head on their shoulders for math, and were kind of a MacGyver. They could solve problems with whatever was at hand, very much men of the, of the earth. And now they're walking back into town when they should be coming with loads and loads of fish back to their family to prepare for the Sabbath meal, and they're telling people that they've become disciples of a rabbi? Well, what rabbi? People are going, well, I, this, this rabbi who's been in town for 20 years, there's a guy over in Bethsaida or a guy down in Magdala, those are both rabbis, was it one of them? And they're saying, no, this is a brand new rabbi that you've never heard of, and people are saying, well, what does he teach? And all the disciples can say is that the kingdom of God is nearby and that we're supposed to repent and believe that that's true. And there's a lot of head-scratching probably going on. For those four disciples, I would imagine that they're ecstatic. This is their chance to bring Jesus back into their hometown and show him off and prove to all the naysayers that they're going to be more than just fishermen. But it's also an opportunity for them to be confronted with some questions that they don't have answers for. They have not sat with Jesus long enough to really be able to regurgitate his teaching. They're brand new at this, just like anybody else who may be in, Sabbath, or excuse me, in synagogue that Sabbath morning or who may have encountered them on the road and said, hey, who's this fifth guy that's hanging out with you? Four brothers that I remember, you know, we used to sit next to each other in middle school. So this is a whole brand new experience for them, but it's been very positive so far. So far. Now imagine we accelerate forward in the timeline and they witness Jesus exercising a demon, something that none of them probably thought that he could do or even knew that he needed to do. Again, remember, this is their hometown in Capernaum. Very likely that they've at least passed this demon-possessed guy in Walmart once or twice in the years that they've been growing up. And maybe Peter's looking at Andrew and he's going, I told you something was up with this guy, all right? The foam at the mouth, you know, the screaming in the middle of the night. Ah, and Andrew's like, all right, okay, you're right. I, I don't know, I was trying to be more charitable than that. But I guess he's possessed. I mean, this is a really odd experience for them to have in the context of the place that they grew up. So they're riding higher and higher and higher. Jesus has rebuked this demon. He's taken authority over it to silence it. The word that he uses when he says be quiet basically means be muzzled. I'm tying your mouth shut is what Jesus is saying. He's not recommending that the demon not talk. He's making that choice for the demon. You will not speak about me. And now he leaves the synagogue and what do you do? You guys are great students of Old Testament law and Jewish cultural history, right? Where do you go after the synagogue Sabbath is over, on Sabbath is over? You head home and you eat your Sabbath meal, right? That's what you all were going to say, right? You prepare it the day before, but you have to stop preparing it when the sun goes down. So it's logical that at the next step in the story, they would head back to somebody's house. And I would like to think that Peter, in classic Peter form, probably raised his hand before anybody else. Even, maybe he didn't even raise his hand. Maybe he was so excited, he jumped in and said, hey, Jesus, before James and John can invite you over, you're coming to our house for Sabbath lunch today. So let's keep reading. Let's see how that goes. Verse 29. That same day, Jesus left the synagogue, and he entered into the house of Simon, who is also Peter, and his brother Andrew. And along came James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever, and right away, as soon as they come into the house, they told Jesus about her. 
And Jesus came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up. We can assume up out of the bed, not like up in the air, but helped her to her feet. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So again, as the synagogue service wraps up, Peter turns to his new rabbi, and he says, you got to come home and eat with us. And this was traditional. It was to be expected. I don't know how many of you guys have spent any real significant time in the southern United States, especially the Gulf states, but I can tell you from experience, after church is over on Sunday, you go to lunch. You have to. And you really want to get out of church about 15 minutes before the other churches do so you can get a better seat at the restaurant. But it's just part of the tradition. You have to, you have to go to lunch when church is over. It's expected. Uh, and probably you go out to eat if your family is like mine. And so this is the same setting. I don't think it was a surprise to Jesus that they were headed to lunch. Certainly Peter had had enough time to wrap his mind around how am I going to lay this out so that James and John don't beat me to the punch so that I get the honor of having Jesus in my home. But they make their way across town, which based on what we understand of the archaeological record, was about a mile and a half away from the synagogue, give or take, depending on if the synagogue where it exists today was where it was back then. We don't know that for sure. But it's not a long walk. Uh, We would say at most it's probably 10, 15 minutes, but maybe even just a couple of minutes. It could have been much, much closer than that. So they get home, they go in the door, and Peter, who's probably just jubilant, I mean, he's probably kicking the door open and going, I'm home and you're never going to believe what happened. I mean, he hasn't been able to text his family, I'm following a rabbi now. They're still kind of guessing that he's going to meet them at synagogue on Saturday morning after having fished all weekend long, and now they're finding out that he's not a fisherman anymore. He changed his career. He didn't ask any of them about that first. Now he's a disciple. He's going to be a holy man. He's going to be a philosopher. Really? You, Peter, of all people? And he steps in the door, and I would imagine he can feel immediately that that this is not going to be the party that he had in mind. In fact, because his mother-in-law is sick with a fever, very likely his wife, the woman whose mother this is, who's very sick, she's probably weeping, she's probably anxious, she may not have slept for a couple of days sitting beside the bed of her mother trying to bring whatever cool water and towels that she can to try to lower the fever within the body. So Peter turns back as Jesus is coming behind them because I would imagine Jesus almost was never at the front of the line, just knowing his character. He was probably like, that's fine, Peter, go ahead. you be the line leader today. You know, it's gonna be, everybody's gonna be fine. We're all headed to the same place. So Peter comes back out and, and they tell Jesus she's sick. And I would imagine based on what I understand about the culture and the medical world at this era that there's probably a little bit of a warning here of we might not need to come in anymore. A fever for you and I is something that can be treated with over-the-counter medication, and that's good and right. But in this day and age, when Jesus was alive, it was a deadly killer. The common interpretation of the rabbinic tradition, the rabbis who sort of interpreted the Old Testament and provided, I guess you could say, a guardrail or sort of a supplemental teaching to the Old Testament, to what the Hebrew people would have called the Tanakh, the rabbis would write commentaries, similar to commentaries that we can buy from Lifeway or InterVarsity Press or Crossway or whatever. And within those commentaries, they would lay out interpretations and recommendations based on their understanding of the Old Testament law. Well, a very common teaching among the rabbis of Jesus' day was that a fever, which is literally translated in Greek as a fire, pyro is the root of the word used for fever, that a fire within somebody's body, a fever, a high temperature, was considered to be judgment. It was divine fire sent by God down on sinners to curse them and potentially kill them for their disobedience. So not only is it contagious because a lot of fevers are viral and that's the way that it spreads. We know that now because we have a little bit better understanding of the way that the microscopic world works than they did in Jesus' day. But more than that, there's all this religious stigma. There's, you can, I mean, you can think of the AIDS crisis in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. Just maybe being in the same room as somebody was enough for you to take on this thing that wasn't just a sickness. It was kind of asking to die. It was very stigmatized. 
And so there's this sense of like, it's a holy day. Yes, we've already gone to synagogue, but we're supposed to stay clean as long as we can. Ceremonial clean the rest of the day. She is not clean. She is sick. Also, lunch is not ready because she is sick. Also, she's under divine judgment from God. So do we really want to hang out in the same room as her? Like if God throws a lightning bolt down and he's just a little bit off, it could hit one. You know, do we want to play this game? I don't know. And so they turn to Jesus and they explain it to him. And he does the last thing that any of them would have ever expected. I could just see him. I mean, if you know the stories of the gospel, you know Jesus' character very well. He's gentle, but he's strong. He embodies meekness in a way that no other man, I don't think, ever has in human history. And there's this idea, there's this sense about him of everything's going to be okay, and I'm in control. I mean, we see this when he calms the storm on the boat. We see it when he interacts with a demoniac on the other side of the sea when they cross over and they meet the man in the graveyard who's been beating himself and ripping chains apart with his bare hands. Jesus just doesn't panic. It doesn't seem like his heart rate goes up and he begins to step back and go, oh my gosh, I can't get sick because it could ruin my ministry. He calms everybody down. He steps into the house. He goes through the living room, back into the back bedroom where Simon's mother-in-law is laying in the bed, and then he touches her, which is not only what no one expected him to do, you could argue it's what he should not have done. It was not wise, it was not smart to make contact with a person who had a deadly communicable illness. But Jesus doesn't seem to be afraid of that at all. He doesn't seem worried in any way. He reaches out to her, and here's what's so amazing about the book of Mark. If you remember... The book of Mark is made up of the memories of Peter. So this is Peter's version of the story. This same story appears in Matthew 8. It's also somewhere in Luke, the other two of the synoptic gospels. In those two stories, Jesus never touches the woman. He speaks to her. He commands that she get up in one of the stories and the other. He speaks gently to her and invites her to her feet. Again, probably a little bit of interpretive difference there based on the disciples and, and their personalities. But there's something burned into Peter's mind about the fact that he stuck his hand out and grabbed her hand and physically lifted her to her feet out of the bed. Remember, church, at the time that these stories get written down into the book of Mark, Peter is an old man. He may even already be dead. He has passed these stories along by way of oration. He's moved into the city of Rome. He's trying to uh, proselytize in the Roman Empire. He meets a young man named Mark who never met Jesus physically, wasn't around when Jesus was on the earth. He's much younger than Peter. Mark begins to follow Peter around as sort of this disciple of his, trying to be a disciple of Jesus by extension. And as Peter tells these stories, Mark memorizes them. Well, then when Peter's about to die, the church says, we can't afford to lose this treasure trove of the stories of Jesus. There is no written gospel at this point yet. And so Mark decides to write everything down as best he can remember it. And you, have to, you just have to imagine that there was something profound about the way that Peter told this story every single time, such that it wasn't just burned into Peter's mind, but it's burned into the mind of Mark that Mark remembers and makes special emphasis to tell you and I that Jesus reached his hand out to the woman, that he touched her, and that immediately, to use Mark's favorite word, the fever departed from her, she was healed, and she began to serve them. It's back to business for Peter's mother-in-law, right? What a woman. I mean, man, to hop up out of bed, she was just in this delusional, feverish state. She probably didn't know where she was. She hasn't even been able to go to synagogue that morning, which is probably heartbreaking for her as a committed woman. And now this rabbi is in her home. He's healed her. I don't even know if everybody has totally grasped whether she's permanently healed or whether this is some kind of superstitious parlor trick. But as soon as she's back on her feet, it's time to get things back on schedule. There is a lunch to prepare. There is a Sabbath meal that God has commanded that we sit at the table and eat together. Now, I don't know if you're like me, uh, but I'm drinking tea this morning because I'm getting over a sickness. We have a lot of people in our church that are sick right now. Um, 
I can tell you <laughs> that if I was Simon's mother-in-law and I was faking this in any way, not the sickness, but I was trying to put on a brave face and prove to Jesus that I'm a good guy and I'm really gonna try hard and I'm not that weak, if I was to get up on my feet, the very last thing I would do is try to serve a meal to a bunch of guests in my home. Like across the last week when I was sick, I might have been able to like put a smile on and get downstairs and put some food in the microwave to eat or maybe fight my way into the garage and take medication, but I do not have the stamina uh, if I'm really sick to get up and fix a meal for people and invite them into my home and care for them and serve them. It's just not in my wheelhouse, and I wish it was. If, if Jesus were to come into my home and heal me, he'd have to heal the fever. Then he would also have to fix my extreme introversion. Then he would have to get rid of a good dose of selfishness that also exists inside of me in order for me to put lunch on the table. I'm saying that to you because I want you to understand these are human beings. These are not magic tricks. These are not characterizations. These are not cartoons for you to learn a moral lesson. Peter's mother-in-law is real. And because she is real, we can trust that she was actually healed or she wouldn't have been able to do this work. This isn't just a, a product of the hype train that Jesus brought with him across these first couple days of ministry. Certainly, the city of Capernaum was ecstatic. People were so eager to come and see Jesus. We're gonna see that play itself out in real time in just a couple of verses but believe that when this woman got out of her bed and was healed because of what she was able to immediately do for Jesus and his disciples, we know that it was real, which tells us that Jesus doesn't just have authority over the demons, and he doesn't just have authority over the experts of the law, but he has authority over our bodies and the things that want to attack our bodies, the things that are out in the world tearing down our bodies. I hope that can be a comfort to you. Many of us are sick right now, and most of us who are here are probably coming off of sickness or, and I'm not trying to jinx you if you think that's a real thing, but you're probably headed that way if you haven't had it yet because it seems like it's going around right now. Remember as you're sick that the Lord God, Jesus Christ, who could still the waters and silence the demons and confound the smartest teachers of the law can also reach your body and he can heal you. He doesn't have to. He hasn't promised that he will in every circumstance. Anybody who ever experienced healing, even Lazarus who was raised from the dead, eventually died again for good, okay? He kind of rolled his eyes probably and went, here we go again. But there is for you a healer and a comforter, and that's the more important piece. When we see Simon's mother-in-law receive healing, certainly that's a good thing for her. It's a balm to her body, and it's probably a relief to Simon and his wife that if he's about to go wander the countryside with this rabbi for three years, at the very least, mama's going to be around to help take care of his wife and the kids. That's a good thing. But more importantly than that, Jesus reaches through the stigma. He reaches through all of the cultural barriers, all of the misunderstandings of the way the body works and medicine, and he makes contact with a person that nobody else would touch a person that nobody else could really see, a person who no one else could acknowledge fully because they had to kind of speak about her and think about her from a couple rooms away or at least outside the house. Jesus steps through all of that and makes meaningful, intimate contact with her. A great pastor who's now passed away, a guy who was a pastor in England in the late 1800s, a man named Alexander McLaren, wrote lots and lots of Bible commentaries. He was the pastor of a church in Manchester called Union Chapel. And in his commentary on the book of Mark, I read this this last week, and I thought this was really profound. He says this about Jesus reaching out and touching Simon's mother-in-law. He says that Jesus' extended hand was, quote, a condensation of the very principle of the incarnation. Now, that's kind of like old school and a little bit maybe academic for you, but what, what he's driving at, if you can think of what condensation is, condensation or the condensing of something is when something that's kind of diluted becomes concentrated. 
So things that have been spread thin or mixed with other stuff, they all kind of get, the way your glass sweats on the table, eventually enough water beads down the sides that it gathers underneath and you have a little puddle on your table, even though you never spilled your drink. What's going on in the presence of Jesus is that by being incarnate, he is bringing heaven to earth with him. When he speaks in Mark chapter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16, and he says the kingdom of God is nearby, that it's at hand, He's not just prophesying about a future reality, and he's not just opening a door into some spiritual reality. He is communicating the literal, physical, like flesh and bone truth that he himself has brought the presence of God from heaven to earth. That's what it means for him to be incarnate, that the presence of God fully and richly dwells in the Christ. And as Paul writes in the epistles, when we see Jesus we see everything that we need to know about God the Father, this God that has seemed unknowable and confusing throughout the Old Testament as people have gotten close to him and then fallen away and then gotten close and then fallen away. Now Jesus has come to them. And it's in this simple moment of reaching out and touching this woman's hand that Jesus is proving the points that he has taught previously and the points that he will continue to teach through the remainder of his ministry, that he came to be with sinners, that he came to make contact with sinners, that he came to touch people that nobody else would touch. He came to look people in the eye that nobody else would look in the eye. He came to see and acknowledge and communicate with and call to himself people who are by definition broken and ragged and exhausted. This is the point. The point is not to get us smarter. The point is not even to get us better behaved or more aligned even with ideas or principles or concepts. The idea is that Jesus uniquely and only can reach down and take your hand and lift you up out of the bed where you lay sick and make you whole. There is no theological conversation between Simon's mother-in-law and Jesus. There's no debate to be had. They don't have time to work through Bruce Ware's systematic theology. They just can't do it. She has a fever. Jesus has to do something for her that no one else can do, and he's willing. And in that moment, we see the whole entirety of Jesus' ministry just encapsulated. And that'll happen again and again and again. Just a few verses from now, he's going to meet a man who has leprosy, who's even more of a reject, who's even more of an outsider than a woman with a fever. And he does the exact same thing. He does it again at a well. He does it again in the synagogue. He does it again in the temple. He does it again in people's homes. This is who Jesus is. Is there healing available for you and I? Yes, I believe that oftentimes there is. And when and where the the body seems to experience a miracle of healing, I always give credit to God. I believe that whether it happens by the hand of a surgeon or some unexplainable circumstance, when our bodies heal, God is at work in us. But more importantly than that, God can be and often is at work in our spirit, in the soul of who we are reaching through all the barriers and things that we use and create and hold up to keep people out and away from us. Jesus walks through the living room, away from all the people who are saying, be careful, don't you know what's gonna happen if you go back there? I wouldn't do that, this is really bad. And he comes into the inner place where the deepest part of us lies in the bed with fever, sick, flailing, dying, worried, anxious, preparing for the end, and he takes our hand and he says to stand. For Simon... For Andrew, for James and John, everything changed that Saturday in Capernaum. Between Jesus' first exorcism that morning and his first healing that afternoon around lunchtime, all the rules of what it meant to be human and even the rules of what it meant to follow a rabbi or to try to have a relationship with Yahweh, Father God, these things were changing in front of their eyes. Like those disciples, you and I receive, we intake stories all the time and those stories are for us our mental programming. 
they teach us what we should expect to happen when we do good or when we do evil, and I'm putting those in air quotes because according to sort of the culture's definition, right? We learn from the people around us, this is good, that's bad, do this, don't do that. And when that happens for us, these stories begin to railroad our future so that we lock ourselves into this collective cultural moment, what you might refer to as a zeitgeist, that more or less assures us of our own self-destruction. As we begin to intake these stories and then we reproduce them out into the people around us and we teach them to our kids and we just sort of accept that that's the way things are and that's the way they've always been, if those principles, if those truths, if you will, are not rooted in what God says is true about the world, the one who made everything, then we are putting ourselves on track to eventually disintegrate. In Jesus' day, there was this sort of superstitious belief that fever was a curse from God on evil people, and that's what would keep people from interacting with those who were less than them. That was the barrier that Jesus had to slice through in order to rock these people's worlds. In 2022, we believe things like God helps those who help themselves, or that the ends justify the means, or that God's enemies are best conquered by violence and hatred and cruelty instead of compassion and patience and mercy, because we've learned those lessons from the stories that we are consuming. The largest platforms for storytelling in in our world, in what I would call the late modern Western world, are best thought of by people like you and I, Jesus' apprentices. These platforms are best thought of as enemy-occupied territory. Now, I'm not anti-media, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not anti-internet. I'm not anti-entertainment. I don't believe God is against any of those things necessarily either. But the result of modern stories driving our mental expectations, this is playing out in front of our eyes. 10, 20 years ago, we wondered what would happen. You and I are living in the middle of the biggest cultural car wreck that I think any country has ever experienced. And really, it's larger than just our country. I use that category because our country influences so much of the world by way of internet and media. But it's really a culture. It's a new culture that's sort of warping and transforming. It's breaking off the tail end of the millennial movement, and it's it's rampant around us. Millions of people believing the stories that our culture tells them are setting timed explosives in their own lives. By aggressively working to create and embrace and embody identities that are predicated only on sexuality or only on gender or only on race, by doing that we have predetermined our own disintegration. Now, I'm not saying that at some point everybody confused about their sexual orientation is going to spontaneously vaporize. That's not what I mean when I say disintegration. Not physically, but as we believe the lie that any one facet of the image of God in us, what Christians have historically called the Imago Dei, when we believe that just one part of that is sufficient to become the single identifying factor in our lives, we will psychologically disintegrate. We will mentally disintegrate. We will spiritually disintegrate. Integrate. We will experience the opposite of what integration would look like in our lives. If you don't understand what I'm saying, picture how a tapestry is made. A woven thing, made from cloth, spun from the fur of animals. Okay, A tapestry is made up of individual threads that are carefully woven together. Many different colors, many different shades of color, threads of different thicknesses and different coarseness and different material, all woven together. But the finished product that's created has itself a unique pattern. There's something different about that finished product from any one of the individual threads that makes it up. It gains a unique set of colors and hues. It becomes a uniquely beautiful creation that exceeds the beauty of any one strand of thread. You don't look at a tapestry and go, this is the thread right here. This is the one. I could lose all the other threads and I think I would still really have the tapestry if I could just cut this thread out and take it home. That's madness. 
And yet, we are like a tapestry. This is what it means to be a human being. We are meant by the power of the Spirit of God, through the grace of Jesus Christ, faith that we put in him. We are meant to embrace and accept every facet of our identity. We're meant to discover who Jesus intended us to become by following him. He leads us further into the life that he intends for us. That means self-exploration and understanding is part of how we move with Jesus along this road. When instead of that, a person insists on ripping one thread out of the tapestry and holding it defiantly in a clenched fist, that is what I mean when I say self-destruction. When I insist that you define and understand me only based on my sexuality until I die, I have disintegrated. When I insist and stand my ground and say, I am only my gender, I am only what my gender can be, I can never exceed that or be more complex than that, and God can never change anything about me about that, I am stating to you that I demand that you only see me as that one factor. What we have to do is we have to bring these things with us to the cross. We have to bring our background, our family of origin, all the baggage that we carry, whatever ism you have experienced, whether it be sexism or racism or some kind of political aggression from a person that loves you, you bring these things with you, the tattered remains, as many of the threads as you can sort of scoop in off of the floor where they've been damaged and trodden on by other people, and you offer that to Jesus. You say, this is all I have. I don't have anything else. I've tried to make new threads. I've tried to reweave this thing, and it's not working. Now, the reality for you and I is when we do that, some of those threads will need to go because they didn't come from God. They came from other people. The unique work that Jesus can do is he can say, we're gonna pull this thread out right here. This thing that you think defines your life, this thing that you've been led to believe is the most important and critical reality about you, God didn't give this to you. Another person did this to you by abusing you, by misusing you, by neglecting you, by attacking you. And they did it so many times over such an extended period of time that it was woven into the tapestry of your being. So I'm gonna pull those things out and that's gonna hurt. And you're gonna be worried that there's gonna be holes in you now where those threads used to go. But when we find ourselves at the feet of Jesus and we are willing to let the master craftsman weave his fingers into all the gaps and the holes and the burns and the tears within our being, we will begin to experience just how strong he is because he will fix those things. That's the great fear that we have. For many of us, it's what keeps us from Jesus as we see people who claim Christ and we go, your tapestry's in no better shape than mine. In fact, it seems like getting too close to certain churches and certain people who claimed Christ has actually done more damage to who you are than helped you. But that's not really the answer. And it's not really what the church is about. It's just getting you to come to church. The church is supposed to be about getting you to Jesus. The synagogue is good. It may be where the exorcism happens and it's certainly where you can catch the teaching, but it's in the bedroom of your heart where you lay fevered in the bed that Jesus wants to be. He wants to reach out and grab your hand and he wants to lift you up and he wants to say, get out of here, fever. Be gone, demonic presence. Leave crippling disease or illness. I will make you whole, but you must follow me. When we meet Jesus, he brings all of our threads into his presence and there's a lot of work to do when that happens with him as he repairs all of the damage and the rips and the tears. But just by sensing that he is there, that he's working in the wreckage of our inner lives, I think we find ourselves in that bedroom with Simon Peter's mother-in-law. We begin to understand the significance of this moment and why Peter needed to add it to his story and why Mark felt that it was necessary to include it in his gospel and why the church has taught and celebrated this story for millennia. It's not just because God can heal a fever. 
is because Jesus shows us that he is the incarnate presence of God in human form, willing to come into our presence because we couldn't get into his and to meet us there, there, excuse me, and to heal us. So we'll land the plane here. Come back with me to that Saturday in Capernaum. As the sun goes down, things start to happen fast at Peter's house. This is verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick or who had been oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door of Simon Peter's house. And Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, if you've read this story a lot of times like I have, you may have a question at this point. I read this and I go, why does this happen at night? That's weird. That feels like Hollywood exorcism movie to me, that the demons only come out at night. That's a little on the nose, isn't it? I don't really get that. Is this just a made-up story? Here's what you may not grasp about this. Again, this is the Sabbath, okay? You don't know Sabbath. Let me help you. The Sabbath goes from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. And the rule, the sort of cultural understanding was that the Sabbath ended when you could see three stars in the sky on Saturday evening. So you'd see star number one, and the kids are all going and getting their tablets out of the closet, but they're not on yet, right? And then star number two comes out, and your oldest son has his headphones on, and he's in his gaming chair, and he's watching out the window. And then star number three comes out, and everybody's plugged back in, and separate, and headphones are on, and music's playing, and we're all busybodying our way through life. So what's been happening is word of mouth has spread through the city. People know Simon Peter, the big, burly, loudmouth fisherman, and they know his mother-in-law who's always having to come behind him and fix his mistakes. She's been sick, now she's healed. There's a new rabbi who exercised a demon in church that morning, and now they're waiting and watching. When will that third star appear, and when can we get our people to this healer? What What an interesting and kind of freaky phenomenon that as soon as the sun is all the way set and that third star is in the sky, everybody who's demon-oppressed in the city pours out into the streets and starts to head over to Simon Peter's house. I mean, if you didn't know better, if you had an aerial view of this, it probably looks more like a mob than it does the prelude to a church service, okay? These people are moving fast. They're elbowing each other. Folks that are oppressed by demons, at least in Jesus' day and age, typically have pretty extreme symptoms. They're loud. They're violent. They're aggressive. They're pretty nasty in the way that they speak. Now, mix into all of that, people in wheelchairs and on crutches and with canes and being drugged along the ground on mats or carried in carts behind the people who love them. And suddenly you can see this picture, can't you? This throng of people bottlenecked at the front door of Simon Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law going, I mean, it's good to be well, but good grief, Jesus. This is a lot of mouths to feed. I mean, how long are we going to do this? You know, just the, I think of the stench. I don't know if you've spent much time around people who are chronically sick, like not just ill where they struggle to get out of bed, but people who are so sick that they can't move, that they can't eat that well, that they can't clean themselves. It's not a pretty picture. Capernaum at this point was probably a city of about 10,000 people. If even only one in 10 are coming to see Jesus, we are dealing with 1,000 people trying to fit into what is very likely a two-bedroom, one-bath down by the synagogue. There's not a lot of room. What do you think the neighbors thought of this whole process? I mean, good grief, it's the middle of the night and they're hearing the sounds of demons screaming as Jesus breaks their hold over and over again. There's a pile growing in the front yard of wheelchairs and crutches and canes. The first shouts of joy and song are bursting out into the quiet night as people who've been mute since birth are testing their newly healed vocal cords. I mean, it's amazing. What an emotionally moving experience. And again, forgive my assumption here, but Capernaum is right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
absent from noise-canceling headphones and the sound of your humidifier and the low hum of traffic outside, it's probably pretty easy to hear loud noises come across the top of that still water. And I'm imagining there are people waking up in Bethsaida and Gennesaret and Magdala and Tiberias all around the edges of the sea that are going, what is going on in Capernaum tonight? Good grief, they must have had a really good Sabbath because it is party city over there. As Jesus touches the most damaged and rejected people that Capernaum has to offer, heaven touches down on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And as the shouts of joy and worship get louder and this sort of contagious exaltation of watching Jesus heal again and again and again spreads through the crowd that's gathered outside the house, down through the city streets and the alleyways of Capernaum, the city itself in a way is lifted to heaven and joins into the eternal chorus of praise for God the Father that the angels are always singing in eternity. This was the defining story for life of everybody who encountered Jesus that night. I mean, this was their Pearl Harbor or their 9-11 or their moon landing. This was the moment where you could ask anybody from Capernaum, where were you when Jesus of Nazareth healed all those people at Peter's house? And they'll go, I got woken up in the middle of the night or I was coming back to shore with my boat because I skipped the Sabbath because things had been pretty tough or I was headed out to get the boat ready because it was gonna be Sunday morning and we were gonna be back to work. But I'll never forget the chilling screams or the joyful songs or the overwhelmed look in people's eyes as blind people looked around for the first time and mute people spoke and sang for the first time. It's interesting to me because by reputation, Jesus is not considered a good guy necessarily. Uh, in John's account of the early days of Jesus' ministry, there's a guy named Nathaniel uh, who grew up relatively close by, and his brother Philip comes and tells him, hey, I've met a rabbi that you need to meet, and Nathaniel's words are, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's sort of this reputation about Jesus' hometown, and so here's this Nazarite man who's in the middle of a bigger city doing things nobody thought he could possibly do, and it's effective, but it's also glorious. And I don't want you to miss that. This is another way that we know that Jesus is who he said he was. Because when he moves and acts, we see God at work. This is not just a well-polished, highly skilled, extremely trained, excuse me, extremely trained doctor. This is a man who's exerting a spiritual power that nobody thought was possible, that no one has a category for. And heaven touches earth as he touches these people and heals them. So church, the only application that I really have for you from this story is that you need these stories. You desperately need to ingest the teachings and stories of Jesus. You need these teachings worse than you need to know the weather. You need these teachings worse than you need to know the news, worse than you need an update on the World Cup scores or your favorite college football team or your favorite NFL team. Whatever it is that's your escape, that's fine. Escape once in a while. But there is something about the makeup of your being that needs to see God occupy the earth that he made. Human beings living their best life on the face of the planet is not the point. The point is and always has been that God made a place for himself to dwell in among people who carry his image who are all about him. And when we're missing that piece, nothing makes sense. We can't force the puzzle pieces back together. Your family isn't going to run the way you want it to if you don't know Jesus. You're not going to relate to your children in a way that's going to actually help them if you don't know Jesus. You won't be who you could be at work. You won't rest well. You won't know others well. You won't be a blessing. You won't be benevolent. I don't care how many millions of dollars you give away across your lifetime. Without the Christ living and walking on the face of the planet that he himself created, you can't figure this thing out. He is the only decoder ring for life now and life in eternity. He is the secret weapon 
and we need him. This is the core to me, okay? Jesus himself, the very center, what the Bible calls the cornerstone of the whole thing, of everything God has done on the earth since the beginning of time until time ends, it is all about Jesus. All Christian teaching, all theology, all doctrine, it's aimed and targeted at him. And when we choose to ingest Jesus' life, to ingest his teaching, to ingest his death, to ingest his resurrection, we open our minds up to the possibility that Jesus can change everything and that we can change, and that if we follow him, we will change. We need Jesus the way that we need oxygen, and the way that we need water, and the way that we need food. In the same way that memorizing all the ingredients to our favorite recipe doesn't actually fill our stomach with food, (laughs) memorizing lots of facts about a God who feels very far away does very little to satisfy our soul's craving for intimacy with that God. You can understand the meal without eating it. You can learn about it, read about it, study it. You can read about what people who spoke French and German or who reformed the church or who fought and attacked in crusades or even early church fathers thought and believed. Or you can eat the meal. You can come to Christ himself, ingest his stories and believe them and you will, will be changed. You have to actively do that. You have to actively ingest the teachings and stories of Jesus no matter how well you think you know them or how predictable or stale church life may feel that it has become to you. This is the remedy to be with Jesus and to know him and to do it regularly. If you will engage with Jesus personally, he will do for you what he did for Peter and Andrew and James and John and countless of hundreds of other people that Saturday evening in Capernaum. Only Jesus and only Jesus' teaching can paint for you your future in a way that makes you both want to participate in that future and also believe that by participating you may actually see that future become your Reality, And this is why Jesus begins in Mark 1 with the good news of God's kingdom and invites us immediately to reconsider or reimagine and believe. It's the same gospel he preached in Capernaum's synagogue. It's the same gospel he preached around Peter's table that Sunday, excuse me, that Saturday at lunch. And it's the same gospel he preached well into the night to the sick and oppressed in Peter's living room. It's the same gospel offered to you. And it is the same gospel that will spark a love for Jesus in you that will overwhelm anything that you have that would keep you back on the fringes of faith. Jesus wants you right there in the middle with him. When you meet him, you will love him. And when you love him, you will follow him anywhere. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for eyewitness accounts of what you did, Jesus, where you went, who you were with, what you were willing to do and say. So much of these stories, from my perspective, God, is lost on us. We don't get it. We don't get you. We don't understand. And I think many of us have been taught that the curiosity that would push us past that misunderstanding into understanding is somehow unnecessary or or wrong. So I pray that you would spark our imaginations, that, Jesus, you would be more than the Renaissance paintings that we've seen, that you would be more than even the representation of you that we've seen in other people's lives, that we would learn to know you, and as we read these Gospels, your character would leap off the page, out of the story at us, that we would feel and believe and experience, God, that as we spend time in your Gospels with you, that we've actually been with you, not just learned about you or come to understand more about the context in which you live, but been with you, God. We wanna be in your presence now. We believe that's possible. So Father, we love you, Jesus. We are thankful in spirit. We need your help desperately. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.